listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm your host, Selwyn Heidi, and we're coming to you today with a special episode of Word Fitly. Willie recently gave a presentation down in Paducah, Kentucky, which of course is Pastor Appold's church, talking about mission in the book of Acts. And so we wanted to present to you today the audio from that presentation. There isn't going to be any breaks during this audio, but we hope that you will get something out of this. And as always, we will be back with more content in the days ahead. Please enjoy this audio from the presentation. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Heavenly Father, you have caused all Holy Scripture to be written for our learning. Grant that we may in such wise read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of life everlasting. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So Pastor Apple is correct. Um, My previous experience um, being a pastor and then a vicar has typically been in a Spanish language context, either overseas or what they call nowadays a domestic missionary. Uh, now I'm in a, you know, nearly 150-year-old German congregation, which was a bit of a, you know, whiplash, but it does give you a good perspective on this. Um, and as we go through Acts today, this is really what I want to want to focus on. As we talk about missions, we often think of it in terms of two things, foreign and funding. So people far off and how much money are you going to give me to make it happen, right? But as we see in Acts... And as we really understand Acts, we have to read between the lines. It's what you don't see. It's, it's, it's not simply uh, the story of, of great miracles and things like that or, or of one missionary journey after the other. It's the planting of churches and leaving it to the local people, calling out from among them elders and the work that is left there. And in many cases, the churches in Acts are still there. They still remain. And we go from preaching primarily to the Jews in the beginning of Acts to the Gentile mission, and the fruits of the Gentile mission continue today, even down to this morning here in Paducah, down to you. You are the fruit of what is begun in the book of Acts. And so that's what we want to look at. Now I will say, um, and I'll get my phone out so I don't go too terribly over time, uh, towards the end of the discussion we will have a time for questions, but if you have questions... Um, in the middle or whatever, just raise your hands. We'll keep it pretty, pretty informal here. Um, it's kind of a shotgun approach. We're going to go, you know, pretty uh, quickly and pretty cursory through the book um, to look at a few main points here. So Acts chapter one. You all understand this. Uh, Jesus uh, has the promise of the Holy Spirit. He's already said in the gospel that um, I must ascend so that the Helper may come. If I don't ascend, the Helper won't come. So Jesus um, ascends into heaven a day which we're going to celebrate here very soon in the life of the church. Um, Matthias is chosen through the casting of lots. Fast forward to chapter 2, and we have Pentecost. So they're all waiting together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak, in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. It's interesting when you look at how people teach the book of Acts. They always emphasize uh, something. Uh, For certain denominations, it's emphasizing Pentecost. For 
other denominations it's emphasizing, say, the practices uh, laid down. If we look at it only narrowly, we miss a lot of what is going on. So, the Holy Spirit descends. They're speaking in tongues as the Spirit gives utterance. And now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Peter is then going to preach a beautiful sermon talking about the crucifixion of our Lord and His being put to death and the need to repent and to believe in Him. 2.36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The people have heard this, this sound. Now they're hearing in these tongues. They're hearing in their own languages. Some are going to be given to understanding. And now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. This is the beginning of the Great Commission being fulfilled. Go ye into all the world, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them all the things I have commanded you. It begins with preaching, and it is sustained in the life of the church as we are going to see. But preaching must be at the forefront of any mission, be it Paducah, Kentucky, or Nashville, Tennessee, or Tokyo, Japan, or somewhere in Antarctica. It must begin with preaching, and it is sustained by preaching. Preaching leads to repentance. Repentance causing them, by the work of the Holy Spirit, to turn unto God. They are baptized, receiving the remission of sins, and receiving the Holy Spirit. The promise is for their children, for them, and for all who are far off. We'll talk about this more as we get into the book. But it doesn't end there. See, this is how we count missions often. This is how many churches count missions. And decisions or numbers of baptisms are kind of like a, a clicker, like you're counting the number of people you can allow into a building before you have to kick them out for COVID reasons or something like that, right? We've had 300 baptisms this year. We've had two baptisms this year. Perhaps you feel shamed when you see that. But again, if you leave it at that, if you stop reading at Acts 2.38, you're left with the idea that they're preached to or preached at, depending on how, how you feel about that sermon. They're baptized and then they go. But no, verse 42, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were, to, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. See, very quickly... People can jump to verse 43, many signs and wonders, but it's in verse 42 that you find the life of the church and what sustains believers and what sustains missions. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Preaching makes Christians, or preaching leading to baptism makes Christians. They are brought into the church and begin in the life of the church, the breaking of bread and the prayers. Any church start, any mission, must begin with preaching and worship. The divine service has to be at the heart of that. 
And if we're not careful, we can sort of read kind of a social justice thing into Acts as we start looking at almsgiving, which is an important part of both pastors and layman's work. But everything comes together, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread and prayers, and they held all things in common. You'll see this at least one more time in the book, and everybody gets nervous at this point, right? Because it is vindication for Bernie Sanders. That I got some laughs. Some people are wondering where I'm going to go with this. <laughs> the principle here, of course, is not going to be, and we don't really see this becoming the model of the church in the book of Acts or even you know, necessarily in the early church, but the principle here is making sure that your brother is taken care of, that your brother doesn't lack. And so what do we have at the heart of the church? Preaching, baptism, breaking of bread in the prayers, and love for the brethren. All elementary things, all things that are not earth-shattering. I'm a Missouri Synod pastor standing in the tradition uh, that goes back 2,000-some-odd years or more, so I'm not going to tell you anything new today. And I hope you're happy about that. You should feel pretty comfortable. But it is easy to forget. As life becomes busy... And as we read things like the book of Acts and we see the accounts of the miracles and we see the great numbers of people, sometimes thousands of people come in, we think, does the Holy Spirit even work the same as it did then? Yes, I would submit to you that the Holy Spirit works as powerfully today in the saving of one sinner as He did in the early days of the church in the book of Acts when He was saving all of the sinners that you're reading about. It is the same Spirit, it is the same mission, it is the same gospel. And it is this word that you carry, it is this word that the church carries out into the world. It is the testimony of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that cuts men to the quick and makes disciples of our Lord and Savior. It is a powerful tool. And the world would have you believe that it is insufficient. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. What is sustaining the church throughout all of this? It's very interesting. You're going to find the word received with joy. You're going to see these great gifts and miracles in the book of Acts that are received with joy. And very soon, as the apostles begin preaching and other disciples begin preaching, they run into rejection. They run into the ire of the world. See, even when they're converting some 3,000-odd souls and baptizing them, you still have the majority of the world against them. So even in the book of Acts, it's not rosy, but what continues to happen? The church grows. The people are fed by the hand of God, and they grow in His grace. The book continues on with Peter healing a lame beggar, uh, Peter speaking at Solomon's portico. They're called before uh, the council and, and so on and so forth. They are coming up against the religious authorities of their day, just as Jesus had promised them. And even today, we're coming into that again. If you are faithfully proclaiming the gospel, and this is particularly to pastors, but also to laymen as you um, bear witness to the hope that is within you, you will find pushback. And we're sometimes perplexed by that. Well, I've given them the good news, right? I've told them that Jesus loves them and that He's died for them and they can live forever with Him, that God has completely won their salvation for them, And we're perplexed as to why people would reject something like that. That's why you have to look at Acts and his preaching in terms of a miracle. See, we're okay with seeing the casting out of demons as a miracle. 
or the healing of the lame and the healing of the blind and then so on and so forth. But it takes a work of God in the heart of a sinner before they can turn unto God. God must cut them to the quick. God must convict them of their sins, and that comes about through the Word. The world is naturally turned against the things of God. And so, yes, it is discouraging when people reject, but it shouldn't be surprising. And you shouldn't be discouraged then from not preaching the gospel. Instead, you should understand that you are told to bear witness to the truth and that God is going to work through that. And if God is working through His Word, God will give the increase. And if you're willing to do that, then you're going to stand upon the Word and you're not going to be tempted into going after other means. Because we can oftentimes get things turned on its head. We'll get to that a little bit more. In chapter 4, Peter and John go before the council and then we have this beautiful picture or this beautiful prayer, rather, of boldness. There's a prayer for boldness for the church, that they would not shirk from their duties, that these men that God has called would go out, and the church at large would be strengthened. There we have our fourth thing the church needs, and the most often neglected one. We know that we need to preach. We know that we need the church. We know that we need the sacrament. But we forget that before all of that, we need to preface it with prayer. And we need to conclude it with prayer. Our Lord tells us you don't receive because you don't ask. And sometimes even when we do ask, we ask and we pray in such a way as if we're not really expecting God to grant it. God, give me boldness to be faithful to Christ and to bear witness to Christ. Lord, save my spouse um, who doesn't believe or my son or daughter who doesn't believe, if it be thy will. You don't have to put a qualifier on that one. Pray for the Lord to save whoever you would, for it is from first to last His work. Pray as if what the Bible says about Jesus is true, that He is the mediator between God and man. Pray as if God wants to hear your prayers as His precious son or daughter. Pray for boldness, and you just might be surprised to find that God grants it. At the end of chapter 4 again, more holding things in common, more concern for the welfare of the brethren. We have the story of Ananias and Sapphira in chapter 5. We've seen the great work of the Holy Ghost um, at Pentecost in converting these people, and we're seeing the great work of the Holy Ghost uh, all throughout bringing people into Christ. You see a very grave work of the Holy Spirit in the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Are you all familiar with this one? Okay, most of you. I'll give you the Notes version. Uh, Don't lie to God, or even in the New Testament, He might strike you down. So fear actually enters into this too. Again, not all rosy. It's a very strange time for the church, but it is proof that God is living and that God is active. Ananias and Sapphira lie to God. They are struck down for it. Fear grips the church, but even then, what do we have immediately after that? Many signs and wonders are performed. The gospel continues to go out. The apostles are arrested and freed. They're free to go on preaching the gospel. In the fullness of time, the church is growing. The church is growing ever larger, and the apostles are preaching. Uh, the twelve uh, summon the full number of disciples, and they say, look, we're being bothered all the time um, concerning charity for the widows. Okay, so there's this dispute by the Hellenists, Hellenists against the Hebrews here. And, um, and so they said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. 
So very early on then, we are seeing now the delegation of duties going out to other people within the church. And you're beginning to get this sense that it is not 100% top-down, that the people underneath the preachers are still given vocations and tasks to do. And you're going to see very clearly that these vocations are various and sundry, but that they are all given by God. So early on, they delegate this charitable role to what would later be called the deacons, but here we just have the seven, if we're speaking just purely biblically right here. So it's given to them, and they go out. So now you have the apostles over here continuing to preach and to teach, and then you have other people given other tasks within the church to do. Now, you can get into the historical debate over deacons and and what they're for and what they're called to do and that sort of thing. That's not really the point that I want to stress today. It's just simply to say that there are various offices raised up within the church and various tasks people are given to do, and you're called to do that faithfully. And sometimes within the church, we can look at things um, as kind of jockeying for position. Uh, You'll see that more with Simon the Magician and things like that, trying to buy it. But... People say, well, I don't want to be, I don't want to be given some service role, right? I want to be given a teaching role because that's greater. Is that true, guys in collars? They don't want to answer it because they, they think I'm setting them up for a trick question here. But no, we have to understand that whatever we're tasked with doing is from the hand of the Lord. And sometimes it is a, it is a, it is called to the teaching office of the church, the preaching office, right? And other times, God is going to raise people up um, to be Sunday school teachers, right? Or to be mothers and fathers, and, and so spread the faith in that way. We should be content with whatever God calls us to do, or whatever we're asked to do. Um, because sometimes service in the church isn't glamorous. I don't think the distribution of alms and dealing with the disputes of these widows was the most glamorous job in the church. Have you ever mediated uh, two groups of fighting women at all in your life? Right. That's why they bailed on it. That's why they gave it to somebody else, right, David? But again, we're starting to get this rudimentary organization between the church, and you're seeing them leave it a lot of the church work to the local people. You deal with this distribution. We're going to see it more once Paul shows up. Chapter 7, we have Stephen. Stephen is seized at the end of chapter 6. Now we've come to chapter 7. Stephen is going to be martyred. He's going to preach the gospel with boldness. Here is an answer to that prayer for boldness. Stephen preaches in a way that causes not repentance, but causes them to stone him. And I would assure you that the same sermon will cut people in different ways. It's the work of God upon the heart. And man will by nature reject that. But Stephen, in answer to prayer, was given boldness, and he receives a martyr's crown. You're going to go into the world, and you're going to see all different models for church planting, and you're going to even look around your communities, and what are you going to see? Different approaches to church and church growth and church work. Understand that no matter how hospitable or palatable you make your church or plant or mission or whatever, the world will reject it if you are truly preaching Christ. If your mission becomes so palatable that one, people don't care you're there or don't notice that you are there or cannot distinguish between what you're teaching and what, I don't know, the the local charity down the street is doing, then it ceased to be a mission. It ceased to be a church. 
How do our confessions confine a, define a church? Right? Where the gospel is preached and the sacraments rightly administered. If you are preaching the gospel, the world will not understand. Now, this doesn't mean that you intend to go out and just poke a stick in everyone's eye like Westboro Baptist style or something like that. But in the natural proclamation of that word of God, the world will push back against that. So never plant a church or organize your church in a way simply to appease those of the world. Okay, it's not going to be successful as far as eternal things are are guaranteed, but it's going to cause you to compromise where you don't need to compromise. All right, we go on into chapter 8, a very, uh, very famous uh, saga here of uh, the Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Philip is going on uh, through, through villages. There is great joy for the gospel as he performs signs and wonders. So he baptizes the eunuch, and then he gets kind of uh, quantum leaped out of there. It's a very strange kind of... It's like he baptizes, and it just says he's taken up, Okay. And then in verse 40, but Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. So Philip is traveling, kind of an itinerant preacher like all of the disciples who are called early on are. And what is he doing? He is going from town to town preaching the gospel. And what do you think is happening? Again, here we have one of these instances where you have to read between the lines. What is happening? What do you think is happening here? What happens at Pentecost? They believe. They devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. This is what is happening in each town as people are converted. And the churches are not fancy buildings. They're certainly not at this time. But you have the one thing needful. You have the word of God from the mouth of the apostles. You have the breaking of bread. You have the prayers and so, in no matter how humble the circumstance, how small the mission, how small the congregation, that mighty work of Pentecost is still continuing on from town to town as the gospel is preached and as people are brought into the kingdom. As Acts is going to put it, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, and God continued to add to their numbers day by day. It is often very discouraging when you see the result of preaching or rather don't see the result of preaching. We don't know, ultimately, as we tell someone about Jesus Christ what the fruit of that is going to be. But I do suspect that in heaven, at the end of time, when the new heavens and the new earth are reunited and we see all of the people who are ushered into Christ's kingdom, all of those whose faith was placed into Jesus Christ, we are going to be surprised to see what fruit even a simple testimony bore or even a simple scripture that we shared and what fruit even our humble prayers bring that we did not see here in this time. We have to understand and we have to look at mission as God working in His time and working through His means and trusting in those things alone. Chapter 9, we have the conversion of Saul. And then in chapter 10, very quickly, we have the Gentile inclusion. And this is where you come into the story. Isn't that nice? Peter has his vision. And I love talking about Peter's vision because he has the vision of all these unclean animals. And he says, I can't do it. I've never, no unclean thing has ever touched my lips. And then he's kind of perplexed at first. Well, what what does this all mean? 
And the first thing we want to do when we talk about this vision is make it about what? Food. Yeah. Oh, so I can eat bacon now, right? I can just shove this ham in my face. Surely that is what this means. If we would just read the Bible, the book, we'd get to Peter saying, oh, now I see it means that the Gentiles will be included, that the whole world will be included. But we like to think with our bellies, and bacon is good, and sausage and all these other things that are forbidden. But ultimately, of course, brothers, it's not about that. It is about the Gentile inclusion. And this is a radical thing. There are many living at the time of the book of Acts who are unsure of the universal implications of the gospel, which seems rather silly to us to think about. The words of Christ are very clear, go into all the world. All the Jewish world, according to some people, right? But no, it's, it's into all the world. And we all understand this. And we have been very good about this in the Missouri Synod. We are in very contentious times as a nation and in the Western world right now. And your churches, our churches, are going to be shamed a lot because they look, well, as if we were founded by Germans, you all kind of look alike to me, right? Um, I say that as a Scots-Irish looking out at you guys. You look very different, right? But they're going to say that's a bad thing. They're going to try to um, shame you for that. You know, um, just recently I heard uh, some famous missiological speaker say something like, when are we going to realize that the gospel is not for one specific group of people? And that is such a, a ridiculous straw man. The Missouri Synod, the Lutheran churches always realized that. And there might have been sticklers here and there, but essentially from our very beginnings, we have been engaged in missionary work. It's a myth that we weren't doing English stuff early on. It's a myth that we weren't reaching out to Indians early on. And relatively early, at least in the corporate organization of the Synod, we are sending foreign missionaries out. We have always been concerned about people who weren't German. And we could have done better, maybe. But any accusation you could say about us shortchanging um, people who weren't German, you could say we shortchanged Germans in the same way, right? Anytime we fail to teach faithfully, no matter who the group is, you know, that that's why we didn't fail because we didn't reach some specific group. If we ever failed, it's because we were too shy about preaching the gospel in its in its clarity. And so we get to the Gentile inclusion of whom you are the fruit. And I just want to say this, that as we go on throughout this talk, and the reason I bring up this, our supposed failure to reach out to groups is, is that my goal as a speaker today and as a pastor is to never put an undue burden upon you, and I will never accuse you of a sin that you don't have because we have enough real sins to deal with. So as you go into Acts, and I know that I'm kind of uh, moving much slower through this than I had intended, you're going to find what? You know, you go on into like, um, you know, verse 13, or excuse me, chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas, Paul on into Cyprus, Paul in Antioch, Paul quoting Isaiah about the power of the gospel. Um, we'll stop at 14, but up into 16, for example, Lydia, the, the jailer, you start to see households included, and I'll just, we're going to jump around a little bit. So you start to see what? You have the, the jailer who is converted. You have Lydia who is converted. When these two individuals are converted, what happens? They're baptized, and who else is baptized? Their whole household. 
There, there's our proof text for infant baptism. But there's also proof that the, uh, what's happening in the New Testament isn't, isn't entirely novel. It's proof of continuity with the Old Testament. For example, where in the Old Testament do we find children of believers cut off from the covenant? Nowhere. This is how covenants work. And this is how the new covenant works. This promise is for you and your children, just as it was, but now also for those who are far off. So there's this universal application there. And if the promise is to you and your children, all who are far off, what does that mean? Yes, you will baptize the stranger in your midst. You will baptize the one who is being converted. But you're also going to be baptizing your children. And typically, your children look like you. And typically, your children share a heritage with you. And so it's perfectly natural to assume that your churches are going to look like this. Faithful Christians getting married, having children, and then raising them in the faith. Don't let people shame you for that sort of thing. Now, that, all that said, that doesn't mean that just having babies will spontaneously grow the church. You have to raise them as Christians. So, and we've seen this time often, right? You, you see a child at baptism, they show up for two to three years of confirmation, and then we'll see them maybe for a wedding in a few years, right? Well, that's not what's laid down in Acts. What happens? They devoted themselves, back to chapter 2, the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. This promise is to you and your children. Children are baptized. They are part of that covenant community. Their sins are forgiven. They are engrafted into the church. They are part of Christ's body. And just like your body needs to be nourished, they too need to be nourished in the faith, and so they grow. And thanks be to God, our children remain Christians often. And thanks be to God, they have children. And so your grandchildren now look very similar to you. And for some of you, they're sitting in the same pew as you on Sundays and on and on. And this is one way in which the church grows. Now, I do understand objections to this because some people would say, well, have we so emphasized um, sort of the natural <laughs> growth of the church via child rearing uh, that we have neglected the evangelistic aspect of that? I think that there is some, there's some fairness in this accusation because you can't go to one side or the other. You can't simply neglect or ignore the fact that children of believers are included in the church as they are baptized into the church. At the same time, you cannot ignore the mandate to go out into all the world. So you do have both, but mostly you have faithful families continuing the faith according to the tradition handed down to them, and I mean that in the most biblical sense, and along the way, the gospel is still being preached and new families are being brought in. Both of these are good. So pastors understand that we have to preach and that although we are called to a local body, called to a parish, we understand that part of this call is not simply to preach to the however many names are on the church rolls, Right? Or to more specifically, however many on those roles actually show up on Sunday. I'll preach to those people, but not the rest of them, right? Because how else am I going to get them? No, there is still a public aspect of the ministry that pastors cannot ignore. If we pastors are going to say, in any sense, that these words apply to us when Jesus breathes on the disciples and says, whoever sins you remit, they are remitted. Whoever sins you retain, they are retained. If we're going to say that applies to us, then we have to say the Great Commission applies to us. And the Great Commission is, go ye into all the world. 
preaching and teaching and baptizing and so forth. And that one becomes very difficult because that is where the awkward conversations come. Just like when you're dealing with a delinquent member, trying to preach the gospel or preach the law to, um, to a stranger or to the transient who has just showed up at your doorstep or something like that is a very difficult and uncomfortable task. And yet I would submit that it is part of our calling to do. But it's very easy to simply just retreat away, to sort of lock the office doors and to not do that. We do that because, one, we just don't want to be uncomfortable. But deep down, we might actually believe that this word isn't sufficient. And some fall to that temptation. Well, I can just simply open up some kind of charitable ministry. We won't really explicitly preach the gospel, but it'll be much more comfortable to do. And we can say that we're witnessing in some way. But, as you see in Acts, people start to see the charitable side of the church. They see the love the church has for one another, and they begin to get curious, and they come into the church that way. But how do they come into the church? What has to happen before someone can be a part of the church? It is never simply enough to say, okay, we're going to give away free diapers, for example. That's a good work in and of itself. If that's all you do, good. But if the goal is ultimately to bring people to Christ, what does the diaper ministry or the food pantry or whatever we're doing, what what has to go along with that? Christ and the preaching. So you show them the love of Christ through the general love that you show them through your alms and through your charity. But somewhere along the line, somebody has to come to them with the gospel because the gospel is explicit, is it not? that salvation is found in Jesus Christ, that all men have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that God so loved the world He gave His only begotten Son. And we shouldn't shrink from this, and we shouldn't treat it as if it's something to be hidden away. Likewise, we shouldn't um, you know, only treat charity as if, as if it's not a good thing in and of itself, as if, as if it's bad to simply give like a, a homeless guy money, but only if you give him a tract too, okay? There's no sin in just simply being charitable. But when we look at it in terms of church and of outreach, there has to be some intentional preaching there. All right. So I skipped ahead to 16, but, you know, we're kind of back in back into 14 here. So Paul and Barnabas are preaching in Iconium. And then this is what I want to talk about here. Uh, 23, and when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer, there's that word again, And fasting, we don't like that word too much, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So they're going from town to town now. People are believing, and they are calling leadership from the local body. Okay, they're actually appointing elders, at least at this point, locally. Throughout church, you will still have missionaries sent out. Early in the book of Acts, though, the elders are appointed from the local body of believers. So that localism, although the apostles are in place, there is a top-down approach to leadership, they are leaving the work of the ministry to the local elders who are appointed. And so you're going to go on to the Jerusalem council, you know, Timothy uh, joining Paul and Silas, Paul and Barnabas split, Paul and Corinth, so on and so forth. You're going to go through all that, and you're going to forget that all these chapters ago, they established this congregation and left it in the hands of the local believers. That even in the book of Acts, it's not the apostles micromanaging everything. But after prayer and fasting, they entrust the congregation to the Lord and let the local congregation rule itself. 
Now, this is not um, a lecture on, on church polity or anything like that. My point is to say that the local work is carried out by locals, and that has been the model from the beginning. That you can do great things even from your front porch, from your front door. And that mission work and church planning and other activities does not always need to be associated with the far off. It is good to support that, and we should support that. And you'll see evidence of this, for example, the Gentile church is supporting the Jerusalem church and their poverty and things like that. But day by day, the work is increasing at the local level. And that a local church plant is just as valid as an international church plant. But the terms mission and funding and all of this have become so intertwined that oftentimes our congregations, when they think of missions, they think of what? This organization that we write a check to once a month or after every special offering. Instead of the place of the local congregation in the community. It's so much easier to write that check. Believe me. And when I was a missionary and we have to raise our own funds these days, I really wanted you to write that check. Don't get me wrong. And we need that and we want that and that is wonderful. And you should support your district and you should support your missionaries. But that is not a replacement for what? For here, for boots on the ground actual work. So Paul is going to go on, and as Paul, uh, you know, he goes to the Areopagus, and he, he knows his opponents so well, he's able to beautifully present the gospel to them. He takes the gospel even into horrendous places like Corinth. He takes the gospel into Ephesus, and he comes into a place like Ephesus, which is, which is a tremendous story, and I want to focus on that for a little bit. Um, so most of you here are from Paducah, and you're all from the mid, I think everybody here is Mid-South District, right? No? Okay, a couple now. We'll just call everybody Honorary Mid-South for the purposes of this discussion. Let's talk about 20 years ago. Do you think that the Mid-South District, the, the non-Christians living in this geographic area, were more friendly toward the church than they are today in general? General respect for the church, or at least kind of a tip of the hat, than they are today? Yeah, right. So, yeah, so years ago, more friendly. In recent times, have you begun to see either, not necessarily open hostility just yet, but more ambivalence toward the church in the community? Yeah. So that's what you're starting to see. We've got a lot of ambivalence probably the last 10 or 20 years beginning. Be ready for hostility to begin very soon. That's why Ephesus is important. Paul goes to, uh, goes to Ephesus to preach and he, he finds some disciples and he says to them, he's talking to them about the Holy Spirit. He enters into the synagogue there. There's this interesting story about the sons of Sceva. But what I want to focus on here is, uh, what happens. His, the response of the Ephesians to him. So he goes in there and, uh, there's a man named Demetrius. He's a silversmith and he made silver shrines of Artemis. Well, his business gets hurt. Paul goes in, people are converted, and in fact, they are so disinterested in their witchcraft now, so disinterested in their paganism, that they take their books and what do they do with them? They burn them. This is probably the first time you've had a pastor endorse book burning in front of you, but here we are. It's not always bad. The question is, which books are you burning and who's doing the burning, right? 
See, that's right. That's why you'll be here 35 years. We've got a long track record here. Yes, so, so they are cut to the quick. They are converted. The gospel works so mightily, the word of God works so mightily in this town that there is a change in these people's lives. They are throwing expensive books into the pyre and it causes a riot because it so disrupts the local economy. Could you imagine seeing that kind of preaching unto repentance in a town in America today? It's happened before in the distant past, but do we believe in something like that and we want something like that to happen? See, we often think it can't, and we're given a sort of pessimistic view of the church and the church growing. And I don't think that we have to. I think we simply need to return to simple things, to prayer for the church, to fasting, and to intentionally gathering around and building upon the things of God. It might be slower. You might not see giant growth like you see in chapter 2 of Acts, right? Or here in Ephesus, or a lot of the places that Paul goes. But don't discount it. Don't count America out yet. Don't count Paducah out yet or the Mid-South, the Missouri Synod. Never count the Word of God out. Okay? Believe that God can work. So all throughout here, uh, we have, um, you know, Ephesus, the book burnings, the riot. Um, and even after the riot happens, they burn their books, and then the gospel, it says, is received with joy all the way through the rest of the book, chapters 23 and following, Paul is going around um, preaching the gospel. Uh, Paul uh, even appeals to the governor. He feels that his rights are violated by a Jewish persecutor, so he asks for an appeal to the governor. That's a very interesting thing we could learn, but outside of the scope of today, that it is okay to insist on your legal rights, although Paul does appeal to the governor as then an excuse to preach the gospel to the governor, so there's something there. Uh, Paul is going to end up shipwrecked. He's going to end up on Malta. Paul's going to arrive at Rome. And then that's sort of where the book ends. The book ends with Paul, you know, living there in Rome two years at his own expense. He welcomed all who came to him. But it's the, it's the next last or the next to next last verse. Paul says, Therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. Paul is immediately referring to the fact that the Jews are rejecting by and large or beginning to reject the gospel. There have been many who have come in and there are still many who will come in. But he says, the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, they will listen. So it's a comment on the status of the church, but it's also a prophecy of what will come. And it has been fulfilled and it is being fulfilled. The church is a Gentile church now, and again, you are the fruits of that. And so, if we look at Acts as a missions manual, and I told you we're going to go through that really, really quick at the front end, um, what then does that look like for us? When we talk about church planting and missions, immediately, because of the corporate nature of it and the funding nature of it, we automatically begin to talk about how do we fundraise? How do we find real estate? What do we do? All of these things are very important discussions. But first and foremost, it needs to grow from that local church, or in our case, sometimes from the district. But I don't think you can effectively plant a church without help from the local congregations, however far off they are. It's nice being in the Mid-South because I think a lot of you 
aren't able to take your churches for granted quite like we are in central Illinois. In central Illinois, I can't throw a dead cat without hitting a Missouri synod church, right? Every exit on the interstate, you know, St. Paul's, St. John's, St. Paul's, St. John's, rinse and repeat, everywhere. Down here, so you got Paducah. What's the, what's the nearest LCMS from here? Murray, about how far? 45 minutes? 50 minutes. So you're stretching into almost an hour there. Maybe Clarksville from there, is that about right? I noticed you guys didn't count any of the Illinois churches. That was good. That was a good move. <laughs> um, but no, but you're, you understand what it means, some of you, having to drive to get to church. And that actually is a, is a bit of a sanctifier there, of having to make a little bit of a sacrifice. But So you've got these large swaths here where you'll have a Missouri Synod church, very faithful group of people, and then you'll have a big stretch of land without anything in between. You have a very ripe harvest. See, what we deal with um, in, in sort of the more, shall we say, Missouri Synod uh, heavy districts is anytime you want to like try to plan a church or do a mission, you're stepping on someone's toes, right? Well, no, see, we're two miles from this church and you're, or from this town and you're two and a half miles, so it's, it's our turf. Here, I don't think it, well, here nobody's going to fight you over it. But this is how that can grow. Remember what Philip is doing uh, before he's, you know, after he's quantum leaped out. He's, he's going from town to town preaching the gospel. And we have examples of this. This is the old church planning model, the old Missouri Synod way of circuit riding and preaching stations. And why do these things uh, appeal so much to me as your speaker today? Because they emulate what you see in the book of Acts, going from town to town, preaching that gospel, and scattering the seed, as it were, and seeing what bears fruit. And the local church is so important. They appoint elders to those local churches. They trust the apostles. The apostles trust the local churches to make more disciples. That's what they leave them to do. And that is your charge today. Not in a legalistic way, but in a bold way and in a confident way, knowing that the word of God does not return void. So, so you've got a church. You've got an hour between two churches, hour and a half. What do you do? How many towns do you think you have between, between those? You know, four or five? Who knows? Who knows how big they are? I do know, I do know this. Real estate in small southern towns, pretty cheap. If you had to have a preaching station, somebody would probably give you a place to do it. But it can be done. And it needs to come, though, from that local body of believers. So the pastor goes out and preaches, right? And maybe Sunday afternoon you're going to set up this, uh, this preaching station. You're going to say, we're going to, gather around the Word and Sacrament here at the local church. Saturday evening we're going to go, or Sunday evening, whatever, we're going, to have, uh, we're going to have a prayer service here in this other town and see what bears fruit. Or maybe you have members who live far out. They're an hour away. They're driving into church. Well, what can we do in your town, right? This is closer to what you see in Acts than simply um, dropping some stranger in there. And there's nothing wrong with sending dedicated church planners. That's very good. But we're coming more and more to a time where that's getting difficult to do. So how can the local church support that? The local church can do it in a number of ways. One, we can give money, and you should. But two, we can also give of our time to support these missions and these ministries and to, bring, and to help bring new people in and to help foster them. I don't think anybody here is really excited about the prospect of fewer churches. But it could be we end up with more but smaller churches, or we could see consolidations. But if you've been around the Missouri Synod enough, you know that we 
don't love consolidations when real estate is involved. And so I still think the best way, the biblical way, is to make new, but it is to encourage and empower those who are already in the churches to go out and do, and to encourage your pastors to do that. And as your pastors always tell me, they don't have enough to do. They feel very underworked. They would like more to do. <laughs> but believe me, if, if, if we encourage this, it will bear fruit. Now, we shouldn't do it, though, again, in a legalistic manner or in a way that, that okay, if I don't go out and say, start a preaching station, I'm not fulfilling the Great Commission. Of course, that's not the point. My point is that you can do this. My point is that this is what you see in the book of Acts, and my point is that it's the preached word, it's going to bear fruit. And we need to start looking at things in terms of brass tacks more and more. Um, I do a lot of work, you know, looking at the Bible, obviously, because it's my job, but especially the book of Acts, and then also looking at, again, the 19th century, because that is the seminal uh, mission century for our nation. I mean, you do have the first great awakening, but the Second Great Awakening is really where like Lutherans come in in big numbers and things like that. And what do we see there? See, we like to like roll our eyes at the Methodists and the big revival, the big revivals of that time, and we talk about their circuit riders, but we were doing very similar things as far as how we took care of churches. Granted, Lutherans were not doing big revivals, but they were riding the circuit. They were doing very hard work, and that circuit riding stuff continued all the way up into the 20th century, and in some cases it continues today. And it is hard work, and it is not appealing to many people. But our Lord never promised you an appealing calling, pastors, and our Lord never promised any of His disciples or their pastors or laymen that, that the task would be easy, okay, or that you would be received in every town. He promises just the opposite. But He does promise that His Word will work where it is planted. And it won't return void, it will bear fruit. And so we're coming into a time of testing for the church. By that I mean the, the church at large and not just the Missouri Synod. But we're coming into a time of testing and now the ball is kind of in our court. What will we do? Where will we find support? Um, where will we find encouragement? And I would admonish you to find that encouragement in the gospel. To find that encouragement in the word of God with what they did and how God sustained them. Find those promises there because those promises aren't only for the people in the time it was written. Those promises are for the church of all time. Find the promises there because the devil will tempt you into resting on anything other than that sure word of God. The devil will tempt you to do what? Um, they'll say, okay, so you've got to grow a church. You've got to start a new church. And it's got to have 2,000 people in a year or we're going to cut off funding. What are you going to be tempted to do relatively quickly? Compromise somewhere, right? Do whatever we need to do. I'll do handstands if I need to. We'll, we'll raffle off boats if we need to to get people in. And that is effective at getting people in the doors. It's really good. It's so easy to get people in the doors. It's easy to get people excited for a little while, at least for one Sunday or two. But that's not what you see in Acts. What do you see in Acts? Remember, it doesn't end at 2.38. It continues on through verse 42. They come to Christ. They are baptized. And they continue on in the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread and the prayers. It is slow work. It is deliberate work. Right? It is, it is like uh, the cunning of a canyon very slowly. That is the work of the church. But just as that river trickles through 
and continues to expand that, uh, that canyon, so too the church is ever-increasing, disciples are ever-growing in the grace of God, sanctification continues, and so the church continues to grow fuller and fuller, even if, to our eyes at times, it looks like it isn't. Do we have any questions up to this point? Yeah, um, you know, that's the thing. Converts often have a very different perspective on it. You know, um, it's good that you come to churches that's the church you're raised in. Hopefully it's because you believe it too. But, but uh, you know, converts have often thought through things probably in a different way than the cradle Lutheran, for example. And oftentimes they'll be the most zealous. They'll actually, sometimes they're not your best ambassadors for that reason. But uh, some they are very zealous for the truth because, you know, when they come from Reformed churches, for example... Um, let's say they haven't been taught about the sacraments, right? Or they don't have a beautiful, deep liturgical tradition. They feel a bit slighted at what they've been missing, as if they've been missing something this whole time. And you know what? They're right. You should treat your... Your church is something they've been missing. You have a fullness that they, that they were lacking. And I don't think we should be shy about that. I mean, be tactful as much as you can. Don't just pick at the Baptist churches or something like that. Or do. I don't care what you do. I'm leaving after this. But um, he'll deal with it. But, uh, yeah, to stand firm on that tradition is, is a strength of ours. And this is what I was alluding to. Um, you're Southern, but you're still Lutheran enough that when I'm trying to be subtle and get you to say something, you're too shy to say it. But you know what I'm trying to say here when I say, what are we tempted to do when we're only focused on numbers or things like that? The first thing we're tempted to do is to uh, start to jettison, you know, what you're saying are very good things. And they are, and I don't think we should jettison them. Um, Inasmuch as I said it's okay for, um, you know, that, that your kids in the church look a lot like you, it's even better when our churches actually have a measure of uniformity. And there's always going to be some variation in local custom, but our Catholicity is our strength. Because it ties us not only to the other congregations of the Missouri Synod, but it ties us back to the historical patterns, norms, and forms of the church. That is a strengthening foundation. Yes, sir. Yeah, and it is, and it certainly is. Um, but again, you know, and I know you're not saying this at all, and I was at your point. Um, you know, you're faced, we're faced with two choices there with the difficult things of biblical teaching. We can soften them to where they don't resemble what the Bible says, or we can stand firm on them and trust God to uh, keep us faithful and to give the increase even through that. Yeah, there are things about our churches that are uncomfortable uh, for people, and but they're biblical, and so we can't we can't change on that. Yeah. And, I, and I'll say this as an addendum to that: um, it, it can become awkward and a bit uncomfortable to uh, invite people to church. But as much as we talk about a clean conscience, I promise you the embarrassment of asking someone to church um, does not outweigh the shame we feel when we when we know the right we ought to do and then don't do it. And so a bit of temporary embarrassment or temporary heat is nothing. I mean, because we might end up with another you, right? You never know who's going to come. <laughs> um, so I'll take some more questions in just a second. Um, it does remind me of another uh, point of clarification I want to make too. As I have, um, you know, kind of died on the hill of it's okay to see all these little blonde kids because we've got a lot of older blonde kids who made them. Um, at the same time, too, there is no shame in reaching out to everyone. And so the church 
Catholicity in mind will take on some local customs or appearances, right? So if I'm in Denison, Iowa, I'm the na- I'm a you know a, a Hispanic missionary out there. What do you think my congregation looked like? Less blonde, we'll put it that way, and much less English, right? There was no English spoken. Why did my congregation look Hispanic? Because we were preaching the gospel in Spanish. That's why we didn't get too many Germans. There was not a single Swede in the Mexican church out there. Um, your congregation is going to look like the community that it's in in a natural way according to the will of the Lord. So don't ever think about quotas, right? We've got to get 50% 20-year-olds, right? And, and uh, we want to get our 80-year-olds down to like 7%, right? Trust in the Lord to do it. You know, if um, a, a, a congregation in Nashville is going to look different than a congregation in East Tennessee, most likely, right? Um, and speaking of which, I'm glad that you do have, you've got what, at least two congregations in East Tennessee I can think of, right? Knoxville and uh, Sevierville, is that right? So that's going to be mid-south. Right, I know, it's a foreign land to you, but here's what I'm saying, uh, President Pavela. When are you going to stage the hostile takeover of eastern Kentucky? You know, it's the same thing. Just go up there. Let's start planting churches. Let's get it done. We can do it. Take anything, anything, anything Tennessee can take from Ohio, you have my blessing and my prayers and my financial support if you need it. But um, it's going to look a little bit different, and that's okay, but that's natural. You know, the church in Ephesus looked different from the church in Corinth. Right and look different. You know, you have different towns there. You have different ethnic mixtures, even in the Greek-speaking world at that time, and those local congregations reflect that, but in a in a natural way. Um, and I mean that just because that's just the way the demographics go, but also um, because it again is the Lord that gives the increase. And understanding that whoever is in the church, whoever is brought there, is brought to you through the Lord's means, but it is ultimately the Lord's work that they be brought in. That gospel goes out to all. Our job is to be faithful in getting it out there and let the Lord decide what the increase is going to be. More questions? Yeah. (laughs) Right. Well, that's cultural appropriation, sir, and I'm offended. I'm offended that you would even try something like that. No, yeah, very good. Um, Yeah, it is... um, you know, it, it is exciting to do this here and to have this talk here. And, and I say this not um, just to blow smoke or anything, but uh, you know, to see the number of young families and to see the zeal. You know, we've got converts here and we have curious people here. And to be in a place like Paducah and like this part of Kentucky, and then we've got some people from Tennessee here too, these not historically Lutheran areas where we have the faithful proclamation of the gospel going out. And we need to encourage one another with that, encourage one another uh, in that word, and in that proclamation. Um, you know, Lutheranism, there is nothing wrong with, with sauerkraut suppers and, and things like that. And I will never denigrate those. I think those are powerful and good uh, cultural heritage. You have a pickle hob you wear for some Sunday, don't you? <laughs> is that gone? No, no more later, Hosen? Shame. For shame. For, here I was trying to build you up, make you feel better about it, you know? There you go. There you go. But my, my point is that the sum and substance of Lutheranism is found in the gospel preached and the sacraments administered. It's found in the scriptures. It's found in our confessions. And our confessions are not something simply dusty and locked away uh, and only for uh, you know, 
a quotation on old episodes of Prairie Home Companion or something like that. These truths are for everyone, and it is wonderful to see, uh, as we travel throughout this great country, to see our faithful congregations wherever they are. For the Mid-South, for me in particular, because although I'm from eastern Kentucky and we belong to the Buckeye State, the Buckeye District, um, culturally I'm very much part of, of what they would consider, you know, the Appalachian South. And we have one church in eastern Kentucky. Well, there's Maysville, but that doesn't count. But we have one church in far eastern Kentucky. That's my home church. And nothing else in Appalachia till you get down into Tennessee. Uh, a few little things in West Virginia here and there. Um, when, I, when I think about the mission field that is America, that's what I think about. And, I, and I've served overseas, and it's tremendous. We need overseas missionaries, and I'm glad we're sending out more and more. But there are large swaths of our country that have not heard the gospel, right? And it's been generations. The churches have ceased preaching, like even local Methodist churches or whatever. The field is ripe for the harvest. And that's hard country, you know. I pity whoever we would eventually drop down in there. It's hard scrap of work. But the fields are ripe for the harvest. And if Paul can go into Corinth and Ephesus, well, we can go into Appalachia and make a go of it. And if he can turn even hard-hearted Corinthians uh, over to him and toward his gospel, then he can turn people in the Mid-South, the Deep South, even people in the Northeast if he wanted to. It's a powerful thing that we have. So everything today, again, is to, is to encourage you, is to show you that you have the most powerful thing in the world at your disposal. You have the Word of God and God the Holy Spirit working through it. To count what you have here as a blessing to consider that you were privileged by God's kind hand of providence to be born when you were at the time that you were, to be raised up, called by Him, washed by Him, sanctified by Him, and placed into His service. He will continue to sustain you. He will continue to lead you. He will continue to put laborers out into His harvest. And the fruit of that gospel first preached to the Gentiles is fulfilled in you and continues to be fulfilled now even to this day and beyond. Thank you. This has been Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you hear, please check us out, wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly. God love you, and God bless.